Hello. Welcome to another Office Hours podcast. I'm Kevin. No, I'm Rad. Hey, Radney. Hey, Kev. How are you today? Good. Today is another installation of Preparing for Funding. So we are revisiting Preparing for Funding, a very popular series that we did five or six years ago. And we're updating it so that we can get a fresh take on where we are in the venture landscape with respect to early stage companies who are going out and seeking funding. Today, we're talking about founders agreements. Now, Rodney, when I say we're talking about founders agreements, what does that mean to you? Founders agreements to me typically references the restricted stock purchase agreement, RISPA, some people say. Also, if you really want to cover the whole landscape, each founder should also be signing an IP assignment agreement, also known as a right. confidential information invention assignment agreement or founders IP assignment agreement. But those two make up really when people say founders agreement, they make up the basic world of it. And the RSPA is definitely the most I shouldn't say more important. Yeah, obviously, those IP assignments are incredibly important, but I think most people are thinking of the RSPA when they're thinking of founders agreement. Yeah, I've seen situations where people will bring some sort of contract that they pulled from the internet. And I think those can be helpful in pre-formation situations where it says, we agree that I'm going to do biz dev and you're going to do engineering and so-and-so is going to do finances. But when we talk about incorporating a company and getting going, then yes, these are the two critical agreements, the restricted stock purchase agreement and the IP assignment agreement. So let's break these down and talk about them separately. First of all, actually, before we talk about it, we'll go RISPA, Radney, then the IP assignment. But before we talk about them, let's just discuss why this is important. So we're going to use a hypothetical company throughout today. So this is a B2B SaaS company that does... Uh, let's call it a marketing technology for law firms. Okay. So it helps law firms with their marketing. And it's a B2B SaaS company. We've got three founders in our hypothetical here. We'll call these three founders Anna, Jose, and Priscilla. Okay. Anna, Jose, and Priscilla are three founders. So they have this marketing tech platform that they're going to build and sell to lawyers. And it's going to be a B2B SaaS. And I say B2B SaaS because over the last five to eight years, those are probably most consistently the startups that we see are the ones that get funded and grow and exit and are on a traditional venture path. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other industries, a whole lot of other uses for startups. I mean, there's a whole big world out there. But this was a good one as an example. Okay, Radney, you got that? Anna, Jose, Priscilla, they're each going to own a third, a third, a third. So let's talk about why they need to have some sort of agreement between them, right? Let's just say that Anna, Jose, and Priscilla show up at our office and they say, hey, we've got a startup. We haven't incorporated yet, but we're going to, and we're going to make billions of dollars and they've got a spreadsheet that they showed us. And if you look at it just right, the line goes up <laughs> and to the right and they're going to make a ton of money. And they say, all right, we're ready to go. We're ready to make money. What do we need to do next? In our experience, Radney, absent good legal guidance, and then a ton of hard work and determination, dedication, yada, yada. What's going to happen to those guys in a couple of months? Well, in a couple of months, one of them is going to get tired of the idea or someone's going to be carrying the boat and then someone else is just off like having weekend coffee shop meetings where they're thinking of good ideas, but not really contributing anything. And now all of a sudden that one third, one third, one third doesn't sound so fair. And oh, by the way, we never signed any IP agreements, but Jose's third cousin. He actually developed all the tech, but don't worry. He's a good guy. He'll sign it to us and we're still in good hands. Okay. This is hilarious because we never have to have this conversation, but we're thinking about it the exact same way because this is what happens. Nothing 
ever goes to plan. I do like your coffee shop founder. I think I'm going to use that <laughs> as a term moving forward. I think there's a lot of coffee shop founders. They want to go to the coffee shop and pop open their MacBook Air and then think about their startup, right? Or do some real preliminary spreadsheets, probably Google Slides now or Google Sheets and Google Slides on their startup, but never actually do any work. And then they'll find out that when they actually have a business, they'll have to get a PC because you can't build a real business <laughs> on a MacBook. No, I'm just kidding about that. I don't want to alienate half of our audience. But yes, you're absolutely right. That's what happens. I mean, no one knows how hard a startup is. And you made the point about a third, a third, a third. So let's use that, Randy, to segue into an RSPA. You said someone's going to leave with a third of the company. What do you mean? Like, what does that mean? How can they leave with a third of the company? If Anna, Jose, and Priscilla all agreed that they're going to share the company, how can someone get out and walk away with a third of the company? Yeah. So oftentimes you've seen this. What happens when someone comes to us is they have this agreement. Sometimes they're not, they haven't incorporated it all. Maybe there's one piece of paper that says, we're going to split everything one third, one third, one third. We're all going to work on it. Right. But unless you go through the process and you have the vesting schedule set up through the RSPA and you just have a document maybe that says everyone owns a third. And let's say you did incorporate already, but and all you did was sign something that said everyone owned one third of the shares. So then say if there's 10 million shares, they split it up equally, or they maybe they left a million off to the side and they split up 9 million for 3 million each, but there's no RSPA vesting, has a vesting schedule in it. Well, then if someone leaves, they have the equity they have. You know, owning stock is the ownership of property. I tell clients all the time, it's like owning a car. It's like owning your computer. It's an actual piece of property that you own. And so unless there are restrictions on that property that are properly and legally done, if that person owned one third of the company and they decided to, they just wanted to sit at the coffee shop now and do something different, they would walk away with one third of the company, which is not good for the company and seems highly unfair, but that's why you need these founders agreements up front. Okay. So let's transition that to the RSPA. So RSPA, like you said, a lot of times we call it RISPA, but it stands for Restricted Stock purchase agreement, restricted stock purchase agreement. So restricted, so the stock is restricted. The restriction, one of the restrictions is that the shares are subject to forfeiture. So this is an important distinction for everyone to understand. The overall point, the big point that Rad and I are getting to is that everyone must vest. Okay. I'm going to say that again. Everyone must vest. And I say this all the time when I speak at entrepreneurship events or to classes or to groups of startups. Everyone must vest. When you think about vesting, most people just think about the traditional sense of the word, which is if I'm vesting, let's just say I have, I'm getting 1,200 shares over one year, monthly over one year, that would mean I get 100 shares vest each month, right? 1,200 shares vesting monthly over one year would be 100 shares vest each month. So each month, you have the right to those 100 shares. Usually that's through a stock option purchase or a stock option award, and then you have the right to buy them. But with respect to founders in a restricted stock sense, you actually own the shares. You own the shares up front, but they're subject to repurchase. And this is critical. So Rad, you want to expand on subject to repurchase? Yeah, it's a great distinction and it's very important. And when clients ask about it, well, why would I do it this way? Well, it's for tax purposes, right? So when you're setting up a company in the early stages, no matter how big that hockey stick is that shows how much your company is going to be worth, yeah, next month we're worth a billion. Well, today, when it's just an idea on paper, it's worth nothing, right? And so because it's worth nothing or next to nothing, right? It's worth a nominal amount, I should say. Because it's worth this nominal amount, 
you can issue the shares for par value, right? Par value is a value you put on your charter, the document that you file, that's the lowest price the stock can ever be transferred for, right? And that's usually 0.0001 or four zeros or two zeros, but it's a nominal amount, right? And so in those early stages, you can take stock out of the company for that nominal amount. So what you do for the founders, you let the founders take all of it out then. And so you purchase all of it then so that when they go to the IRS, you file this thing called an 83B that we'll go into a little bit more detail in a second, but you file this certificate, this filing with the IRS telling them, hey, tax me now on the value of the stock, right? Because the stock is subject to forfeiture as Kevin referenced earlier, but tax me now on it, even though I might forfeit it later. And the tax is on a hundred bucks or 50 bucks or 400 bucks, right? Something nominal for millions of shares. But then as you go, each month that you're there, a certain amount of your shares gets outside, is released from that repurchase option the company has. So the restriction lapses as to that 100 shares every month. I think lapses is the right word, and that's the technical word. But other ways of thinking about it is that the restriction is released. So like Radney said, the company would have a repurchase right over time if you don't hit the vesting milestones. The most typical vesting milestones are time-based vesting milestones. In the traditional vesting schedule for founders or for option recipients in a startup is monthly over four years with a one-year cliff. I'll say it again, monthly over four years with a one-year cliff. What that means is 148 vests each month, or in our case, 148 is released from the repurchase right each month, except you have a one-year cliff. And what a one-year cliff means is that for the first year, nothing happens. You don't get anything released until after the first year. And then 1248ths or one-fourth is released. And then monthly thereafter for the remaining 36 months. This is critical for founders because a lot of people don't actually have what it takes to be a startup founder. And so if they're only going to stick around for two or three months, we don't want them getting anything. The company wants to recapture that equity. So you set that one-year cliff to make sure people are truly committed. Look, in a startup, people are making no money. Almost always, there is no salary for the founders until you get to a material capital raise. And even once you get to that first capital raise, that salary is probably pretty low, $30,000, dollars $80,000, something like that, depending on the person's station in life. So it's a really hard thing to do. It's, it takes quite a bit of commitment. We want to make sure that people are committed. So that's why you have the vesting schedule, or in this case, the repurchase schedule. But we want to be clear, people will call it a a vesting schedule. It's technically a repurchase schedule or a release schedule, a release from repurchase, but people will call it a vesting schedule. But you have this to ensure that we have the commitment. Okay. So now we've got Anna, Jose, and Priscilla, all of whom are going to be vesting over three, over four years, monthly over four years with a one-year cliff. But it's important to understand that they actually get all the shares right now. Like Rad said, they're going to buy the shares for some nominal price based on par value. And then they get all those shares so they can vote the shares. They get the economic rights to the shares. Realistically, there probably won't be any for some time. But if there was a distribution, they'd get the economic rights. And also importantly, if there's a sale, they get them all. That's a big one, Rad, because a lot of times with option holders, they don't get to participate in that accelerated vesting if there's a sale. Yeah, correct. And with founders agreements, these RISPAs, we typically have what we call single trigger acceleration, which means in the event of a sale, a change in control, 100% of the quote, unvested shares will immediately vest. And so that's a benefit most founders have. 
Now, when you go into those, that A round, it's not uncommon for a VC to ask for that to be amended to double trigger or for them to actually add back onto your vesting schedule, right? If you don't raise that money until year three and you're three years through vesting, you'll have one year left, you might have a VC that says, hey, I want to add another year or two years back on. So you're back on another two or three year schedule. Kev, I want to add one more thing to your initial thing about the one year cliff for your vest. I think that is common, but I also think that for founders, it's not unheard of to do just monthly vesting from the get-go without the cliff, right? Because you make the point that they're not making any money. So if you're making zero money and you're putting your time towards this, then there could be an idea that you should get something out of it. So you're there for two to three months, maybe two to three months is fine. It's not ideal you have some equity, but you have three out of 48, right? You have less than 5% of the total equity that you thought you would have if you had stayed the whole time. And Kevin, this goes into something we'll talk about in a future episode, but Kevin talked about how people are working without getting paid, which is true, but it's also important for founders to understand that sweat equity in the context of employment law is a fiction. Everyone must make at least minimum wage unless they own 20% or more of the company, right? That's under the FLSA, federal law that governs employment law. And so it's very important to keep that in mind when, we, when people are like handing out equity like candy in the early days to this person, that person, not paying them anything, that that's a restriction. Now, you, could, you can pay contractors, advisors, and nothing but equity, right? And have that vesting, and you're, that's outside of FLSA because- they're not employees, but a founder for all intents and purposes, when you're providing all of that service in your full time, you like to consider an employee in the eyes of the federal law. So it's important that person owns more than 20% if they're not going to be paid anything. Yeah, those are great points. You know, if I had my druthers, Radney, for Anna, Priscilla, and Jose, I would say, hey, let's put you on a one-year cliff mm-hmm. and protect you from each other. I agree with you. It's not uncommon for people to come and say, well, we need something. And I, a lot of times, by the time they get to our desk, they've already been working on the idea for a year or so, or they might've even quit their job six months earlier. So sometimes what you can do there is you can give them credit for time yep. served, right? Like maybe you start the cliff in six months or you say, we'll give you six forty eights already mm-hmm. and then we'll have a small cliff. And so there are definite adjustments for that. And then you make a great point about the labor laws. And yes, a lot of people say, well, this person's full time, but they own 5%. And so that's valuable and I don't have to pay them anything. That's just not the case. That's not the case. Now, it's not enforced all that often because a lot of times the early employees who might be small founders want to be working for the company. They're not going to file a labor claim. But it's important that you understand as a founder, they might have the right to. Exactly. And you need to visit with your attorney about that point. Okay. You mentioned 83B elections a second ago, right? And I just want to explain that for a sec because they're really, really important. So under IRS laws, if you have equity that is subject to a substantial risk of forfeiture. And in our scenario, the founder stock is subject to to forfeiture because if the founders don't stick around, if they don't hit their vesting periods and the time-based vesting that we talked about, then they could lose their stock. Well, if your stock is subject to a substantial risk of forfeiture, then you get taxed on the value of the stock once that risk is removed. So imagine Jose, he's got his shares and they're vesting over four years. And if he didn't file his 83B election, that means the IRS is going to look at his shares every month and say, well, what's the value now? What's the value today? And so in year four, if the company's doing really, really well and the company's really valuable and his shares are worth millions of dollars, he could inadvertently have 
tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax consequences because the IRS is going to recognize the income gain on the value of the shares at some future point in time. If, however, you file an 83B election, you tell the IRS, hey, IRS, I realize that these shares are subject to forfeiture, or I might lose them, or put another way, the company might repurchase them. But I'm going to go ahead and claim all of the value of the shares today, which is going to be nominal because we're doing this on day one. And as Brad explained, the company's not worth anything on day one. I'm going to claim all the value today and tax me on that income today, which will be nominal, so that you don't have to be taxed on it in the future. That filing is known as an 83B election. It must be filed within 30 days of the grant of the stock. And it only needs to be filed when the stock is subject to a substantial risk of forfeiture. So it's really, really important. Every RSPA form you have out there, whether you're getting us from us, another law firm, or some online platform, it will have those instructions in there. But make sure that you are filing your 83B elections. Okay, in the RSPA, there are a couple of other provisions that I wanted to discuss today. Brad, the RSPA is going to have the standard kind of market standoff and restrictions on transfer language that is required. But we put a non-compete and a non-solicit in our RSPA. And a lot of standard forms don't include this. And I think it's important to do that. Now, you can put a non-compete and non-solicit in other places. But the reason why we put it there is because of the consideration aspect. We can say that the stock you're receiving is valid consideration for the non-compete and the non-solicit. But for those of you listening, it's important to have this non-compete and non-solicit. Because if you don't, and then Priscilla leaves the company because she's frustrated with the way Anna and Jose are doing things, what's going to prevent Priscilla from starting her own idea using the exact same, from starting her own company using the exact same idea, right? There, there might not be anything preventing her from doing that. So you want to non-compete and you want to non-solicit. Now, Radney, in that example where Priscilla's frustrated with Anna and Jose because she doesn't like that they just show up on Saturdays and with their MacBooks and just want to talk about things at the coffee shop and aren't doing any real work, so Priscilla leaves... What's going to prevent Priscilla Rad from taking confidential information, from taking the engineering code and the marketing plans and the potential customer lists and things like that? Yeah, exactly. That's the IP assignment, right? The confidential information invention assignment agreement we talked about at the beginning, the other part of the founders agreement. That agreement, when it's signed by the founders, it essentially says that any work that they've done up to that time they're signing it and going forward that revolves around the business plan, the business model of the company belongs to the company. And so that means that the actual work that Priscilla is creating might actually be considered confidential information of the company. Not only does the company own it, but it's confidential. It could be, right? Depending on what that was she was creating, maybe it was some interesting code or something. And so when she leaves, she can't take any of that with her right? She can't take the confidential information. She can't even use the slide deck she created or the business plan that she put together. That all belongs to the company. She can remake it from memory to do something similar or unique, especially if there's no non-competition agreement or non-solicit in place. But yeah, if you don't put the non-compete, non-solicit that you're talking about, Kev, in the RSPA, it's hugely important, obviously, to have the IP assignment agreement signed that says, this is confidential. You can't use it. This is ours. You can't use it. Because then if someone leaves and they use that information, you at least have claims against them for breach of that agreement and you can go after them for that. So if someone takes information and competes against you, you're not suing them for violating the non-compete. You're suing them for misusing, misappropriating 
confidential information, trade secrets, IP that belongs to the company. Now, the one thing I want to add to your comment about the non-compete, non-solicit is just that's a state law issue, right? So if Anna, Priscilla, and Jose are doing this in California, well, California doesn't recognize non-competes that go beyond the duration of their employment with the company. So that non-compete would have to be limited to the time that they're actually working for the startup. So once Priscilla leaves, she would be able to compete, right? But if this startup is in Texas, well, then we'd want to have a more robust non-compete, like the one that you were referring to earlier, which involves if she leaves, she can't compete against the company. But it's just important to know that depending on the state where your founders are, will determine how you have to tailor that non-compete. Man, that's such a great point. And that's something that's really changed in the last five years is how some states are really just completely doing away with competitive restrictions on employees on a post-termination basis. So yes, really important. And that non-compete needs to be narrowly tailored or applicable to whatever state the founders are in. But look, the three main things you got to get out of your founders agreements are vesting, the confidentiality, and the IP assignment. And then I would say a close fourth would be a non-compete, non-solicit to the extent they're enforceable in that state. And you're just going to have to visit with an attorney on that one. But the vesting is critical. And then in this IP assignment agreement, the confidentiality and the assignment of all IP. And just so you guys understand, there's several names for the same document. Sometimes it's called a, Rad called it a Confidential Information and Invention Assignment Agreement, CIIAA, Confidential Information and Invention Assignment Agreement. Sometimes you'll hear it called a PIIAA, Proprietary Information and Invention Assignment Agreement. Sometimes I've just seen it called a Tech Assignment Agreement, Technology Assignment Agreement, but they're all the same thing. We just call it Founders IP Assignment. The point is to get the IP out of someone's head and into the company. Let me give you a great example of one. So Priscilla, Jose, and Anna are working on this deal and they haven't gone to an attorney to formalize the company yet. So Anna goes and buys the domain name legalmarketingtech.com and this is what they're going to use for their product. And then they go and then six months later, they they start the company. And then six months after that, Anna decides to leave the company and Jose and Priscilla call her and say, hey, we need the login information, the GoDaddy login information for legalmarketingtech.com. And what obligation does Anna have there, Radney? Well, if they never signed any IP assignment agreement, she likely has none. Right. She likely has none. And now they're going to have to buy it from her yep. if they want it. Even though it's always intended that they would use it and they worked together for six months doing it, but they, she never specifically assigned it to the company. So we've seen some clients learn that one the hard way, but that's just a good example of why it's so important to assign all the IP to the company. Okay. So those are the two key agreements. As we start to wrap this up, I want to talk for a sec, Radney, about what is the right number of founders? This example we have is three, right? Anna, Jose, and Priscilla. And they're each owning the company a third, a third, a third. And, and those seem to work, especially when you're vesting, if someone's not cutting it or it's not for someone. And a lot of times people leave startups, not for bad reasons, just for life reasons. Someone in their family gets sick or a, a spouse gets a dream job somewhere else, or they have considerations about their children that they didn't have previously. These things happen all the time. So that's just fine. It's fine for people to leave companies. We just don't want them walking out with a ton of equity. But what's your thought, Rad, on the startups we've seen about the right number of founders? That's a great question. I think there's different psychology on this, right? I can tell you what the wrong number is, right? right. Well, I shouldn't say that fully. Like, like a two-person founding team can be really good, but if it's a 50-50 split, that's highly problematic. We've both watched companies die on the precipice of anger between two founders that refuse, each refuses to compromise at all, and that mm -hmm. cascades into a much larger problem. 
And then there's nothing you can do because there's a 50-50 unless you've built in certain safeguards and tie-breaking mechanisms that are really hard to do. So two can be difficult if it's 50-50. Two that's not 50-50 can actually be great. I've seen a lot of success with two co-founders that's not 50-50. Three can be good, although sometimes the dynamic is like two on one and then that Mm -hmm. one person, I think it's very often with three co-founders, you see one of them leave pretty early on because of that dynamic. If it's not as cohesive and they're not doing a lot of work. Look, starting a company is starting a community. It's no different. Like it's not something where you can leave yourself at home or something. It really takes great communication and engagement and all of the things that you're taught, these quote soft skills, which are so much more important, honestly, in a lot of ways than quote hard skills that are, that are championed so much more in the economy. But these soft skills you have are so important. So three can be really good. You know, once you get to four, five, six, like when you start having massive groups like that, I usually see those companies seem not to make it. It seems to be just like too much going on. I'm not saying it can't work, but I see more often than not, like the larger numbers just don't seem to work. I agree with you, man. On two, if you're going to be 50-50, I would introduce a third party, a third advisor director sooner than later. Typically, I don't like to go out and get directors on the board, additional directors other than the founders until we need them, which is usually the first equity financing, right? Maybe a seed financing or an A financing. But if you're going to have two and they're going to be 50-50, especially if the founders are younger and haven't done this before, I would really recommend bringing in a third director to help make tough decisions or at least an advisor to help with those tie-breaking like you talked about earlier. I agree with you. Three three can be tough, but if three structured right, if you have an engineer or two engineers and a business person, I think those can be really, really good. But four, five, six, the bigger they get, I think the less chance you have for success because there's so much time and effort spent around getting the agreements in place, negotiating roles, figuring out. I mean, when you're a startup, your role is everything. That is your role. You do everything. And like you said, Rad, you know, about the community, you do it in coordination with your co-founders. And you guys are on Slack or on text message constantly, constantly. You're just staying in communication and then you'll start to define your roles. But I've seen a lot of things fail where someone says, well, you're in charge of finding investors. And then you say, okay, I'm in charge of finding investors. You're in charge of the product. I can't find investors without a product. The product guy says, I can't build a product without money. And you just get these two people going at it. I see that all the time. And then again, when you have a whole lot of people involved, it's just, it's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's too hard to make decisions. So if you're going to have any more than three, I think two or three or one, one's a great number. But if you're going to have any more than three, you you need to be very, very thoughtful about why that is. And that usually only going to work if there's a couple larger people who are the clear decision makers because they own a majority of it and a couple of smaller founders. Right, let's talk on one last issue before we wrap up this episode. And that is something that I was seeing a lot more of many years ago. A lot more people asking about it. I haven't seen it in a while. I might see it once or twice a year. Do you know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, people come to you and like, yeah, I want that founder stock. And I'm like, what do you mean? Common stock? They're, no, no, no. Right, founder right. stock. You know, the special stock. I'm like, oh, you've watched too many episodes of uh, the Silicon Facebook Valley. founding story or Silicon Valley. Yeah, like this idea that you should have 10x or 5x the voting power, right? So I agree. It's much less common now. I'm actually dealing with one where I'm, we're investor side right now and the company that we're investing in has this already. I will say these folks are truly multi-time founders that have had so much success that I think that's why they're been able to raise tens of millions already and have this. But it's 
one, from my personal opinion, I don't like it, right? I think it's a bad way to start the process by having different kind of classes of stock. And I don't think it's good corporate governance. I think there's actually been studies on this, right? If you look at the corporate governance of public companies that have this versus don't, and the ones that have typical common stock voting rights tend to have better corporate governance and do better, not just economically, but for employees, et cetera. So that you have these outliers that became famous that kind of created this, I don't know, cult of personality around wanting this type of stock. But I tend to shy away from it and try to educate clients and say, you don't really need this. I don't think you need it. The times that it makes sense, the few times that makes sense are a multiple, multiple exit founder who's just letting other people in to do it. And the founder is funding a lot of this herself or himself or is using previous investors to do it. But in general, it just complicates things. It doesn't really align the shareholders. And a lot of founders are so worried that they're going to lose control of their company. But if we plan for it appropriately, I always tell my founders, if this company grows, you're likely to lose control, but you'll do it with your eyes wide open. You'll do it willingly because that'll be what's best for the company, right? From a pure corporate governance perspective, it's probably best if we're a $300 million company, have a seven or nine person board. It's probably best if the company's not being led by one person. So yeah, I'm not a fan of class F founder stock either. I'd probably say no to it two, three times a year, but people aren't asking for it as much as they were five years ago. All right. Well, that wraps up episode two of Office Hours Preparing for Funding. Really appreciate you listening in. We'll get the next one out soon. So I'm signing off. Radney, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on today. See you, Kev. Okay. See you guys soon. Thank you. The Vela Wood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawood.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawood.com.